Wars, episode 145 for January 5th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenflow. I'm Pam Bedore. And I'm Jerry Zerman. Oops, sorry. <laughs> hey! Look at that! There's a scientist in the house! Hi, yeah, Jerry! I'm an engineering physicist at Fermilab, so I guess I'm the uh, science uh, information guy. You are my particle accelerator guy. I've got a guy for just about everything, Jerry, but when I think about particle accelerators, I think of you and Fermilab here in Illinois. Well, we're one of the major science uh, particle accelerator complexes in the world and uh, the biggest one in the United States, for sure. So I brought you in today to discuss our new book for 2021. This is Flash Forward by Robert J. Sawyer. This was written in 1999, so it's it's uh, some of it's a little bit dated, but not, not a lot. We'll get into that in a minute. But the reason why I brought you here, Jerry, is because this story centers around particle accelerators, and specifically the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva. Yes, that uh, that accelerator, which kind of took over our role as the, the high energy, the ultimate high energy uh, particle accelerator in the world uh, back in 2009 uh, when it started to come online. Um, and so we, we still are doing particle accelerator science. We just have changed our mode of operation. So we are a little more concentrated in particular areas as compared to the ultimate high energy spectrum. So Jerry, can you tell us a little bit what science is actually taking place at Fermilab? We accelerate particles to extremely high energies. Now in our case, our maximum energy right now is 180 billion electron volts. So that's a very a extremely high energy, even in comparative terms to uh, uh, CERN, LHC. But in that case, we are creating interactions between those particles and other uh, particles. And the hope is that by doing that, you're going to see either new particles or new energies or new science criteria that will be discovered. You'll be able to see it and you'll be able to discover it our concentration because of the fact that we cannot produce energies at the level of LHC is that we've gone to what is called neutrino physics, where neutrinos are particles that come from the sun, come are all through us all the time. Trillions of them go through your body every second of every day, but they don't interact. They just pass right through us. They pass through you, they pass through the earth, they just keep right on going. But occasionally, they will interact. And because of the way they are, they are a very major component to the cosmos, how the cosmos operate, our understanding of the cosmos. So that's one of the reasons why we're trying to investigate it, trying to learn about them. The other area we were, are concentrating on is called muons. Muons are created by cosmic rays that bombard the earth. They, we see them on a very regular basis. They bombard our bodies. Not, too much damage that is done, but they do exist. And in those cases, muons are similar to an electron, but much heavier. And they have peculiarities that we don't quite understand. So we're trying to understand those peculiarities so that we can understand the science behind electrons and other particles that we have around us all the time. There's that much unknown in the universe still, Jerry? Science has not discovered the answers to these questions? 
yeah, the, the misconception is because we have made huge leaps and bounds over the past few years that we have run the table. We've reached the, the limit of what we understand. And that's not true. It's not even close to true. Um, and I guess one of the, uh, an example of that, and it relates to the LHC and their discovery of the Higgs boson, okay? Now, 160 years ago, a scientist, a physicist, J.J. Thompson, was working with this tube and he, they were seeing a ray, an emission, and it made a shadow and he was kind of like, well, gee, that's kind of interesting. What are those? What's causing that? And what he discovered basically was that there's electrons. It was an electron and there's an electron field. They, they eventually discovered magnets, bend them. Okay, we, we didn't understand that, had no idea what it was. Today, we have electricity everywhere. Anything you do has electricity in it, almost given anything, almost, I think. So we took 140 years for us to understand, operate, manipulate, control, do all this stuff with electrons. As of about five years ago, we discovered the Higgs boson. It has a field very similar to electron field. Now, do we understand it? No, we just discovered it. We just, we just found it. Well, if 140 years from now, we can control the Higgs field. Now, Higgs, man, what Higgs does is it gives us mass. It is what determines our mass. Well, if we could control the Higgs field, likely could control the magnetic electric field. Well, now we could adjust our mass. If we could, could actually control, let's say we'd have a belt clip that you could adjust your Higgs field, okay? You could turn your mass down to zero. You could jump to space. Wow. You could be Superman because you could make your body so heavy it would stop a train. You could do all these what we consider supernatural powers by controlling the Higgs field. Well, 140 years from now, can we do that? I can't tell you that. Nobody can. But that's the reason we make these discoveries, because tomorrow we might be able to. Tomorrow, if we discover that neutrinos have mass, the, the whole understanding of how the, the cosmos was formed originally becomes much easier to understand. We start to can explain these things of how old the universe is, how the mass came to be, where, where we're headed. Is the sun going to blow up tomorrow type thing? And these are answers that are questions that need to be answered, uh, if not now, in the future. See, Steve, that's why you need time travel. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> I, I am I'm fascinated by science, but the idea of the Higgs boson is something that I, I can't even get my mind around. The idea that it is the thing that gives us mass. That uh, is mind-boggling. Those of you who have started the new year with a goal of reducing your mass, <laughs> uh, the, the Higgs boson is the yeah. answer. I, I'm not sure that's really the answer, Steve. I mean, you'd reduce your mass, but the, the point is the, uh, the love handles would still be around. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, Jerry, do you enjoy stories of science fiction like we have in flash forward they're interesting in that they're they some of them are written in such a way that the characters and the principles are used to a well good but in general i just 
get really irritated. I get really frustrated because they don't present science well. I'll give you an example, okay? Supposedly one of the better TV shows for science has always been Big Bang Theory. And I watch it and as a cryogenic expert, being Mr. Freeze and being a cryogenic expert, I am. Every single time they show cryogenics on that show, Big Bang Theory, and they had, I mean, they have people consulting, explaining this stuff to them, supposedly. They got it wrong. It was just flat out terribly <laughs> wrong. And it just, you know, it's very frustrating because, you know, I don't mind that people are watching or reading books and getting a taste of science. But when it's presented in a fashion that's wrong, now they're getting the misconception. Uh, time travel, you know, yeah, everybody likes to uh, the theorize or postulate about time travel, but there you go. <laughs> Not me, Jerry. I, I don't read any books about time travel ever. I was going to say in the, um, for, for fairness, you know, the fairness doctrine, is our rebuttal will be from English professor uh, Pamela <laughs> No, but Jerry, I think you're making a super important point, which is that we have so many misconceptions out there in the world about science. And so having misconceptions coming from science fiction is really, really problematic, of course. At the same time, though, I think the goal of science fiction is for some writers, it is to explain the science, but more often the goal of science fiction is to explore that central question of like, what does it mean to be human? Right. And so a lot of times you're really doing sort of social science work in the field of science fiction. You just don't want readers to be like, oh, I'm learning science right now yeah. because yeah. that's really not what's happening most of the time, right? So, uh, three points for Fermilab, three points for UConn. <laughs> you know, I recently read this really interesting book by Amitav Ghosh, The Great Derangement. It's about climate change. And it makes the argument, and I've been thinking about this so much, that we treat climate change as a science fiction. So we put it, like when people write about climate change and environmental catastrophe, it tends to look the same as time travel or alien invasion. And he makes the argument that that's why we're not paying enough attention. And that's terrifying, right? <laughs> if we're not paying attention to climate catastrophe because we catastrophize it in our fiction, we've got a real problem. So as someone who studies science fiction and loves it, I don't know what to do with all this because of course, Jerry, you're completely right that the science is often inaccurate. But what do we do about it? Because I think it's really important also to be thinking about the topics and the issues and the philosophical questions that science fiction raise. But we can't pretend the science is always right, which well, is why people like you on shows like this. There we go. The how science presented, I think, is also a reason why the public isn't as well informed in the sense that if you're presented a science principle that is, you know, great, interesting and all that, but you know, technically not even close to reality, not even close to, <laughs> then, well, wait a second, can I really believe it when they tell me this about that particular science? Well, they're just making a book, you're writing a movie, you're, you're, you're selling a product. You're not telling me this is the science of what is going on now. This is real, and these are the real effects, and the outcome may be as bad as we think, or may not, but this is what we understand. And we have to approach science in that way and not let it get emotionalized 
it is real. The, the numbers we make, the numbers we read are real. They're not made up numbers. They, they are real. And we have to make decisions based upon real information, not emotion. And based on what we don't know, as well as what we do know. I love, Jerry, that you started talking to us about all the things we don't know about particle right. physics. Like, that's what's interesting. And we have to be aware of what we don't know. And, and science fiction certainly could be the gateway to getting to the real science that we, what we're in uh, the springboard. I mean, certainly Star Trek had a huge impact on a generation of people who were doing all sorts of things that at the time were thought of as impossible, but uh, somehow we all have cell phones now and we're all talking to people. And uh, Galaxy Quest was eventually made and, and they all made it all fun. <laughs> <laughs> And the video phone from Back to the Future is yeah, here, yeah, and yeah. here we are discussing this from across the country because actually Dick Tracy had it first. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Good correction. <laughs> from right here in Illinois. Thank you very much. Exactly. Not too far from the Fermi Lab, just to make sure we all know. <laughs> so, Jerry, what are you doing to inspire the next generation of scientists? As a part of my job at Fermilab, I'm an engineering physicist there, so I have real work to, that I normally do. But Fermilab allows me, as a part of my work, to go to schools and do science demonstrations, and in particular, cryogenic science demonstrations, uh, using liquid nitrogen to demonstrate principles of the cryogenic uh, world, uh, flash freezing, and how fast it changes from liquid to gas, and th those type of properties. and the idea is not necessarily to make the next generation of cryogenic scientists. That's not part of what my job is. My job is to make them interested in science. The point is, if you're just opening a textbook and reading the stuff, it's not necessarily going to make you want to do, dig deeper, look farther. Uh, the advantage of computers today is that you can look more closely at things very easily, very uh, efficiently. So therefore, my idea is to be up in front of people, see, let them see that, you know, science is real, science is fun. And then tomorrow, and in particular, that's the reason why middle school is a very good time to do this. Because when they go to high school, you're starting to think about career path. You're starting to think, what's my next uh, thing after this? And if I'm going to want to go into science, that's where you start saying, I'm going to take all the science classes. I'm going to start being interested in science. I'm going to do the extra work and learn more about that area. And you head down that path. You, you, you learn to get excited about that work. And if you are just told uh, you're reading a book is what science is, uh, you're not gonna get a lot of people jumping at that field. But science fiction, that inspires kids. That's true. <laughs> and that's the reason why science fiction can be used as a tool to get people into that area where they're interested in looking at science. It's one of those things where if they produced a science book that told you all the, you know, like flash forward, explain, you know, try, here's what we did, da, 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 da. Then you got a supplement, the second book. It was part of the package. And in that, they actually explained, oh, what are they talking about when quantum mechanics comes up? Well, it, unless you go off, to, now, Granny, you could go off the internet and look it up. Unless you actually do that, you're just kind of, oh, well, it's just, that stuff those scientists talk about, not, oh, it makes sense in what he is trying to do with this book, or in this case, a, a, a storyline. 
you know, it makes more sense if you understand, oh, he used that as the vehicle that is going to make sense. It's going to do, present it. And like I said, the supplement would be, oh, we can explain that. We can explain why he did that because it does make sense in that situation. I, I give you an example from another book. When the book Angels and Demons came out, okay, by uh, Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Um, it was it, the one of the bare cores of it was the fact that they had this antimatter that was going to be used to blow the Vatican up, okay, and the antimatter is created at CERN, LHC, and the the idea was, oh, you know, that's that's very interesting. At Fermilab, they knew this was going to happen. The, the, you know, the, they knew the, the book was out before the movie. Before the movie came out, we had like two or three meetings where they basically brought us in and kind of kind of school us in the details of antimatter. Because <laughs> people knew that Fermilab used antimatter. That's part of the way we used to operate. We used to make antimatter as a part of our operational mode. Well, wait a second. You guys gonna blow the place up? You got you guys got antimatter. You're gonna. What are you doing? Well, you know, if you understand the science, understand what is going on, then when somebody comes up to me and asks me, "Well, you guys have antimatter," I can explain it better. I can Excellent. give a better e explanation, and therefore the science isn't, even though it's in his case literary uh, use, is real. There is antimatter. But the pr basic principles of what he was saying, they're going to have a chunk of it blow up the Vatican, is never, ever possible. It will never, ever possibly be possible. So therefore, yeah, you don't have to worry about that one, okay? <laughs> well, I was going to say, you're dealing with a, a public that um, is dealing with an unknown. They're dealing with stuff that they may not understand. And certainly um, a book or some type of, uh, of uh, story could create a fear out there, the idea of public relations to be able to present it to the public so they can get a better idea of what's going right. on is incredibly important. Certainly um, is attributes to what they basically want to set you up to do and when working with the public. And that's why I called Jerry when we read this <laughs> book, Chip. Absolutely right. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for bringing just some great ideas. Where can we find out more information about the Fermilab programs and your Mr. Freeze program? Um, they, the, our, our website, www.fnal, which is our initials, Fermi National Accelerator Lab gov, is our website. And there's tons of information uh, for on there that you can uh, think. As for me in particular, um, just Google Mr. Freeze of Fermilab and I pop up all <laughs> over the place type thing. Uh, some videos are on YouTube of different parts of the show, which are, you know, can give you an idea of uh, what I do and the re what I uh, bring to uh, a presentation. Hopefully next year we will be doing presentations again. Um, I'm doing, I've done a couple of virtual ones. And so we're kind of walking through that a little bit as far as doing, trying to get a little bit of it out there, but uh, my show is much more entertaining if you're getting to sit in an audience and see 
what's going on in front of you type thing. Well, if there was only some scientists working on some kind of vaccination for us, <laughs> and they could roll it out and we all could kind of see each other again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, Jerry, I look forward to having you on my stage soon. I love what you do for the kids. I love your, your ideas that you bring. The idea of exploring and to find information is uh, key to my lifestyle. So thank you so yeah, okay. much for what you do. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. So, you guys, as you know, this is a book that I really like, but doesn't mean you guys have to. Let me just ask first, just first impressions. This is the first straight-up science fiction novel that we've read in a while. What did did you guys think? Favorite? Least favorite part? Where are you guys at? I'm going to answer this because I really like this book. Yay! So, we've got through the first 11 chapters. Um, there was enough uh, science in there that so there's enough truth. You can dis, you know you can basically uh, suspend your belief and you can go through this journey. And then it's got this beautiful time jump that happens and all this negative stuff. And everybody's just trying to figure it out. It just it, it sets up. This is a great mini series, something that would be on Netflix or a movie or a great book. I agree. I think that the science is there. The idea, the anticipation of what was going to happen with the Large Hadron Collider. When Sawyer was writing this in 1999, it was a big deal. It was the news of science was we are going to discover this Higgs boson and we are going to find the nature of reality and the science fiction part then kicks in where he goes well what if the nature of reality shifts us 21 years in the future what if we all the entire planet all have this moment together then what and so as i've mentioned to you guys before robert j sawyer is one of my favorite science fiction writers and part of that is that he's canadian and he's like a real canadian you notice canadian characters here even though it's not set in canada many of his novels are but he's a guy in my opinion who always he's an idea guy so he comes up with one super cool idea per novel and then just explores it and i just love personally i love the setup of flash forward where you have a situation where every human in the world experiences a loss of consciousness at the same moment for almost two minutes. And then when you get the consciousness back, you realize, oh my goodness, we all had visions of 21 years in the future. It's just such a cool, weird idea that I would have never thought of. I haven't read any other books that do that. And, and then he just explores it. So it's, this is always the case with Sawyer novels. I think that the idea is always so cool. And then you think about all the different ways that you could have gone about exploring it. And he picks one to tell the story. So how realistic did you think he made this feel? Obviously it's not like a realistic idea as we were just talking about with Jerry Zimmerman, but like he includes newspaper reports. He talks about death and destruction. Did it feel realistic enough to really be enjoyed? Absolutely. I, I, I immediately thought of Michael Crichton and uh-huh. the books I had read by him because, yeah, there's a plausibility there and there's enough stuff anchoring to reality that you go, oh, this is this is plausible enough. 
And like I said, you just basically start your journey. We're trying to, we're being introduced to characters. We've got our situation that has created what we um, are concerned about and what we're trying to figure out. At this point, we haven't figured out ultimately what happened other than we've got the events that we're trying to discover. And I just think that it's not so technical that you have to have a, a scientific background to, to get into it or you become too critical of it. It is light enough in the sense that you're getting ready to go on a roller coaster. How lovely is that? <laughs> and there's so much humanity to it. The, the emotions of these characters are so well written where we have the, the, the whole gambit of different things that happen to these people and their emotional reactions. I mean, my goodness, we, we suffer the loss of several characters in the beginning of this that maybe they would have been you know, more prominent characters had they not died in the first part of this book. I was just glad Lloyd made it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how the name Lloyd is spelled. Come on. <laughs> It's French. It's... <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because the three sort of main, or I guess really four main flash forwards that we look at in part one. So we've got, obviously, um, we have the loss of a child through this horrible death and devastation. And I think one of the things that Sawyer does really well, that we've been sort of thinking about this COVID year where Michiko, who is a scientist, she has lost her daughter in the midst of this worldwide disaster. And she doesn't really have time to grieve properly, right? And in the last week of 2020, NPR did a whole series on people who have had losses that are separate from COVID, who haven't been able to really process them in the midst of the COVID era. And I think Sawyer does a really nice job of he continues to remind us that some of the scientists are suffering personal losses, even as they're working 24 seven to try to figure out what happened. Not just the scientists, but the healthcare workers. Exactly. Can you imagine the healthcare situation in this book with all of these things? If the world blacked out for two minutes, there would be so many car accidents. There would be so many plane crashes. The healthcare system would be overwhelmed. We, we get a touch of that in here because um, one of the later chapters, they say that the pharmaceutical companies have basically just opened up like whatever you need. Um, because they recognize they're not going to be able to deal with all the mental health needs of the time. So they basically just open it up. The life insurance company immediately files for bankruptcy because they're like, oh, well, people know, some people know when they're going to die. You know, how, how are they going to deal with all these claims in this, this incredibly unknown situation? CERN representatives are talking a little bit about one denial, but later on they're talking about you know, public relations on how to deal with this, because they may or may not be part of this. And it's looking like that something that they did was part of this. And so, I mean, there's just so many, like little touches that you're grabbing onto this and you're like, oh, this is going to be fun to kind of figure out. Tell me more. And then you have Theo's story. So one of the things that Sawyer does that I really love, and I'm actually writing about this book in a book that I'm writing about Canadian crime fiction. 
because there's this detective plot that's sort of thrown on top of the science fiction. And I love hybrid plots, and this is a great one, where Theo doesn't have a vision because he's dead 21 years from now. He's a young man. He's 28 years old. And other people have been looking at newspapers in their vision 21 years in the future and reading about his murder. So he's in that position. And we've seen this in other sci-fi of knowing that his own murder is forthcoming and and investigating his it. own murder. It, that, mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's great, we right? Could, <laughs> we then, could, his, his part will be played by Tim McGraw singing uh, Live Like You Were Dying. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with that, even though that's a country <laughs> reference. I don't disagree with that because Live Like You Are Dying is certainly on the list. If you know for certain an end date to your life, you would live your life differently. There are computer programs that will kind of figure that out for you, Steve. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Although we also countdown. learned that actuarial charts can be thrown off <laughs> by science experiments. <laughs> In Geneva, Switzerland. <laughs> let me, let me. as you're going through this, let me mention something. What I also enjoyed about this story is it doesn't take place it, just in the United States. This is, it's you know, we're, we're dealing on in Europe with CERN. We're dealing with people from around the world. And, you know, the French guy is speaking French and the German people talk German. But when they're talking to everyone else, they, they speak a different language. The idea of how they're communicating, there's all these little touches of, that really gives it a, a grand feeling, a world feeling, a world altering feeling. This is Canadian science fiction. And it feels different from American science fiction. You could feel that just from reading it, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's not set in Canada. Many of Sawyer's novels are set in Canada. This one happens not to be because, of course, you've got the Large Hadron Collider, but it has that feeling that it's not American, quite specifically. So let me ask you, this: there's a hard science element to this. It's about particle physics, but it's also a social science novel, right? In the sense that it's really thinking and exploring the psychology, the sociology of some sort of scientific thought. So what sorts of anxieties do you think that this taps into and explores? Does this, does this speak this odd situation of the 21 year in the future vision? Does it speak to any current anxieties that we have in our world? I mean, it was written in 1999, but I think it's still very readable in 2020. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think the anytime we're dealing with grand science, um, things that are just above most people's thought process or or consideration, it creates an anxiety because they're dealing with something that the average person doesn't really understand. And I I that that and we're dealing a little bit of that with the the vaccination, Um, the vaccine that's going around right now where, you know, it's been pushed through humans are pretty amazing, we were able to potentially solve an incredible issue in a relatively short time. And what's the first thing that comes out? Like not how amazing humans are that we are able to solve this. It's like, you know, what kind of agenda do they, these pharma companies have against us? That's a terrible place to be, but certainly it's understandable because humans just sometimes have a difficult time with, with higher concepts. 
and that apprehension about the future. We've been talking about the new year for so long. Happy New Year, everybody, by the way. And now we're in 2021. What does the future hold? The fact that we don't know makes us apprehensive of what could be. I'm going to add something to that. There's an anxiety of not living your life. There was the scientist who you know, was looking at his future and he wasn't married, didn't have children. He was kind of asking himself, like, well, it sounds like I'm an important person, but I, I, I didn't maybe live my life. I, I, I was excluded from this other part of my life. And so for many people, they, they just they feel that they're not getting the full breath of what the human experience could be. And that scientist, Ebenezer Scrooge. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Is a vision of the future where you look back and you go, oh, I should change my ways because I don't seem to be happy in that future. But can that guy who saw his future change what is ultimately his destiny? Well, Chip, we'll learn that in part two, right? Yeah, that is brought up in part one. The idea is there, is is this set or can it change? And uh, we we saw one change that happened in part one was someone who had a vision then died before that vision came to be. So is it destiny? Is it set? Hmm. And that's something that time travel, as we talked about with Audrey Neffenegger, always explores, right? Is how much free will do we have? And I think that's an anxiety that's always been with us, but perhaps never more than today when we live in such a, in a world that is full of simulacra, where we live so much of our world virtually, especially during the COVID crisis, but it just in general. How much free will do we have when my Google search gets something more related to me than your Google search does, Steve, or your Google search? Wow. Where we our algorithms actually control so much of our access to information and let alone choices, right? And do you think that's a key anxiety that this novel taps into is the question of how we make decisions, how much free will we have? So let's bring up our sponsor, DuckDuckGo, which is an alternative to Google, who does not save your searches. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Now, Chip, you brought up Michael Crichton. Um, Yes. Let me ask if this reminds you of any other novels that you've read. I mean, obviously, I also just brought up time travel novels in general. Do that exploration of the sort of question of free will versus set universe. I, I thought of Dan Brown, and the idea is there's enough truth to something that you, it becomes the setting off point for your adventure. Yep. Um, it's, it's a little bit different um, genre, but certainly it, it's working similarly. So th- those two I immediately uh, I think of, Dan Brown and Michael Crichton. I have read so many of these books. I, I, I couldn't even I couldn't even <laughs> divide them now. They, they are a genre, and this is right in the genre of time travel and a little bit of dystopia mixed in there, right, expert? And a little disaster, I would say. I would have gone with disaster rather than dystopia because they don't think the world has like a government that is dystopian. 
But okay. but I do think there's a lot of disaster. It kind of reminded me, we read not that long ago, I guess a couple of years now, um, that EMP book by William mm-hmm. Orson. One second after. Right. Where you, you're you going along in the world, everything's just normal, and then something happens, bam, that changes everything. And I think... All of society. Right. So uh-huh. I, I want to mention that my I recommended that book to my father, who could not finish it. He felt it was too dark towards it's, the end. It's pretty dark. <laughs> oh, it's super dark. It's super dark. When they when they get to the marauding uh-huh. band of of, of people who yeah. are can, uh, cannibalizing after what was it sixty days of input? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the notion that it takes forty three days to turn all of us into cannibals not really. Uh-huh. Um, yes, and actually, flash forward, not quite that dark, but <laughs> not that vision of of humanity, which actually, so now let's think about this was written in 1999. So the other anxiety it's tapping into is turn of the century, right? This was very much like you guys remember our Y2K anxieties. Oh, yeah. You know, so. We should explain what that was to our young listeners who have no concept of what Y2K was, Steve. I, I think that they can feel the anxiety of the turn of the year this year. Yeah. The the anxiety, the anticipation of what could be. If this if this negative thing keeps going, it could be a negative going forward, or it could turn around. If the Y2K... You, you want to explain it, Chip? Well, I was just going to say Y2K basically dealt with uh, code that was written for the computers that did not have four numbers to it, like 1999. It usually would place it as 99. And a lot of code had to be rewritten to be able to reflect that. They were concerned that the computers were going to shut down and we had become, you know, there are overlords at this point. So um, that's what the concern was. But you know what? Everything turned out to be happy and we had a happy ending up until, you know, 2020. Because we really paid attention and put billions of dollars into recoding all of the computers that run that run our, our society. So it wasn't, sometimes people think of Y2K as like this overblown anxiety. No, it was correctly blown and dealt with. So great model for how we might think about other anxieties that we have that we need to deal with climate change. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So now this is written in 1999. Part one is set in 2009, but people have a vision of 2030. So what kind of future texts did you guys notice in the visions? I just want to say that I have been using an assignment in my class for a long time where I ask my 13-year-olds to envision 10 years in the future. And this year being 2020, they were envisioning 2030. And so when I saw Robert Sawyer writing about 2030, I thought, huh, this sounds familiar to me. I did love some of the tech that he envisioned for, in his case, 30 years in the future that I think we are very, very close to. The fact that he mentioned that there are no print newspapers in 2030, that seems very possible. Certainly, certainly. The animated tattoos um, that are listed here. Obviously, Harry Potter came true. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the animated tattoos. I think that, um, you know, the amount of, of energy that people put into body modification 
I could imagine animated tattoos being not super far away. I did think I love that Windows 2009 was 3D. <laughs> That's not happening. The holographic so, computer. I know. <laughs> well, there you go. The HoloLens. Let's just uh, those go, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. And Windows still dominated. So there you go. Windows uh-huh. runs the HoloLens. And I swear to you, if the day that the HoloLens is available under $1,000, I will have one. The idea of augmented reality. I want this in my life as badly as I've wanted any technology in the last 40 years. The idea of adding more information to my vision Mm -hmm. is on the verge. We are on the verge of the HoloLens being normalized. Yeah. Now, what did you guys notice that felt dated? Because of course he was, he was representing 2009, which is now over a decade in our past. What did he, because I think he got a lot of things right or right-ish. What did feel a little dated? Any vision of the future from the past is going to become dated. I, I don't I don't fault him for writing a book in 1999 that tries to explore 2030. Um, yes, the idea of hover cars <laughs> is, is maybe one of those ideas from the 1950s. 50s and 60s that has still we're still trying to get to that idea of of vehicles without wheels we're, uh, that we're kind of dealing a little bit with that i mean right near you uh, where you leave, live steve there is an area that people jump on um, helicopters and they take them downtown chicago and take them down in minutes and uh, the idea that that may become much more of a reality at some point i mean certainly yeah. is certainly is is becoming feasible um you know whether it's cost effective for the average joe it certainly isn't the feasibility of a quadcopter that is large enough to carry a person is certainly within the realm of of reason aren't we dealing with that aren't we dealing with that though i mean just on that in la the the um airport the pilots keep um saying that they're seeing a person flying around near them uh, there is, there are jetpacks. There are people out there who are flying Iron Man style. And yes, the air traffic is is problematic when there's a pedestrian. Yes, um, but the idea of the hover car just a couple of inches off of the ground still still seems like a, a no to me. Yeah. No, no sand speeders, Steve. One thing that I definitely noticed, and I noticed with most novels written in this era, is that it didn't anticipate smartphones at all. And so people are still using like long distance plans and very much, you know, the phone technology has not been anticipated. And honestly, M.T. Anderson's Feed, which is a novel that we have talked about on the show before, is one of the very, very few turn of the century books I know that anticipates smartphones, especially accurately. Nice call on that because, um, call, huh? Well, (laughs) the the idea that the, um, there was two, the two people were talking and the offer was to made, Hey, would you like to hang up? I'll call you, uh, because you know, it'll be on our dime, you know, Cernstein versus the pedestrians, um, um, and people don't ever, people do not have a computer in their pocket the way that we do and the way that we did in 2009. Sure, sure. And also, 
because this has a European setting, as we've already sort of talked about, we do get, I really love the fact that everyone in this story is multilingual. People mm-hmm. are constantly like going to the language that makes most sense to speak, depending who they're speaking to. And personally, I really love the scene where Theo talks to the little boy who's like less than 10 years old, who will be the detective who watches the autopsy 21 years in the future, the autopsy of Theo's murdered body mm-hmm. is such a great scene. And the movement between German and French, which everybody speaks and trying to find the right words for like ballistics, Remington, is it an American? You know, like all of, all of this sort of cultural, that, that collision of culture and emotion in this mystery story that's part of the science fiction makes me really happy <laughs> you know and, and that the scene with the, the child he's traumatized he saw an totally. autopsy of course as a child and he's like i don't want to talk about this right. mm-hmm. right. but is it the spark that makes him into the detective that he is in the future that's where good right. science fiction <laughs> makes that change nature versus nurture you know oh with time travel (laughs) you you got me hooked absolutely professor this is thank you for bringing this book to the book club (laughs) oh i'm so glad that you guys liked it and again as a canadian who lives in the u.s i really love reading about canadian characters and sort of canadian perspective did you guys notice a few representations of the united states as a representative of the American South, um, we chose to ignore those parts. <laughs> <laughs> yep, Sawyer definitely brings to the fore some of the issues of the Americas, huh? The American healthcare system being one of the things that he criticizes pretty loudly, and our stereotypical gun ownership. Everybody in the United States must be packing, because that's how the rest of the world sees us, isn't it? Uh, as uh, Leonard Skinner once said, uh, a southern man doesn't need him around. Um, as as uh, Leonard Skinner was speaking to Neil Young, Canadian. Indeed, yes. <laughs> I believe Neil Young had a response to that. But anyway. Um, <laughs> let's not play that out here. <laughs> of course, like any good science fiction novel, we have moral dilemmas many moral dilemmas. Um, The key one, I think, for Lloyd Simcoe, our main character, is the question of whether or not to take the blame for this. CERN was doing this brand new experiment that Lloyd and Theo thought might very well win them a Nobel Prize. About the Higgs boson, which Jerry was talking to us about earlier. And so now the question is, Could this experiment have caused the flash forward? I mean, how? But as as the attorney uh, representing CERN, we we, uh, do not uh, take any blame for this and will not comment further. Exactly, right? But at the same time, (laughs) do you have a responsibility? Even if you don't see how this could have caused it, do you still have a responsibility to draw the attention of the world to the fact that you were, in fact, at 1700 hours exactly five o'clock p.m um, in europe that you were doing this experiment do you open that to people and, and in fact they bring that up too because there's another part that 
uh, the characters eventually think it'll be figured out. And the question is, do you bring it out now where maybe you can control the information? Boy, I am talking like a total public relations guy. Yeah. Uh, or if do you do you when it's revealed, do you at that point, you know, comment on it? And and there's a huge that's a, that's a big question because there was so much devastation. And for our listeners who have not read yet, you know, people died and um, planes crashed. People are afraid to get in cars and travel now because they're afraid of something happening to them. This is having an incredible impact on the world. And so there is a, a, a tremendous amount of liability being held over this this group who ultimately will have to make that decision. But the big question is, was this experiment responsible for this moment? Or was it a total fluke that at this moment, when they conducted this experiment, something else happened in the world? And and that's what they're dealing with, this moral dilemma here. And, and it's possible. And that's the, the deal is they don't know yet. It is possible. They're scientists. They're thinking like scientists. You know, it, it, it could be. It's likely, but it could be, but it may not be. I don't know if I would even go as far as it's likely, because it in, in the science of the Higgs boson, in the science of CERN and particle acceleration, that shouldn't make the world unconscious for two minutes. Nor You're should correct. it create visions of the future. It, it shouldn't make time travel possible, no. But, the, <laughs> but they're thinking, and, and the anxiety here is, they broke something. They they violated some rule of science that impacted not only their their uh, present but potentially their future. Revealed their future. Mm. That's end, good. At the end of part one, don't forget we just have that one guy who has died who says he had a vision. But as Lloyd helpfully points out to us, there's no corroboration his vision he dreamed that he was shaving in the mirror and saw that he was older so that's not really i saw saw the future and i didn't have you know and after uh i I didn't have any stubble you know that was but there's no but there's no corroboration it's not like the vision that one of the young scientists in the lab had where he was actually um with another scientist that he'd only met a couple of times he obviously remembered her much better than she remembered him and they both had a vision of each other so that's a corroborated vision whereas the one guy who's died who had a vision his vision was totally uncorroborated so scientifically it proves nothing so we're kind of we leave part one i think at a really nice place where lloyd says to his boss I'm going to tell the world and I don't even care if people hold me personally responsible. I can't hold on to this. And also I think part of his thinking is like, we have to figure out what happened. We can't be walking around scared. It's going to happen again. We have to know what happened. So we have to put forward any information that could be relevant, even if we don't see its relevance. And I think part of that is because he had a vision of 21 years in the future, he knows to some degree that everything comes out okay, and he feels like he has to share this data. Back to the data again that we talked with Jerry. Sharing the data, having the real numbers to be able to understand the universe. That's the science here. So what do you guys want to learn in part two? 
Oh, I want to learn everything now. <laughs> teach, teach me everything. I want to know everything about 2030. I want to know everything about everything. All right. So what I'm interested in is figuring out is it, did this event, was it caused by, by the representative of CERN? Right. I'd like to figure out what the future, why was that important? What, what was, why was that revealed versus any other time that could be revealed? And what will they learn from that? And then we've got a bunch of little uh, tagging stories, like the uh, child who will become the detective, trying to figure Jeez. out. We got the guy that was um, that's going to be murdered. We got a gun, um, and you know, can he prevent that from happening? Can can you change the future that was revealed? This sets up for a great series. Like this was season one. Let's go to season two. I agree with that. Part one is a very well put beginning, middle, and end with that anticipation of what part two is going to bring us. Absolutely. And I have to say that personally, every time I read a Robert J. Sawyer book, and as I said, I've, I've read all 24 of his novels, um, some of which are in trilogies. I always want more because I, I feel like he's such an idea guy and you could do so much more with this awesome idea and i think he does a great job but it's just one short novel so this first part could have been expanded and i would have enjoyed every minute of it excellent thank you so much for bringing us this Yay. book i i enjoy this uh, a lot and i look forward to part two so pam what is our assignment for next week guys i don't think we have an assignment for next week because we are doing something so exciting you guys, I'm super excited. We are going to actually get a chance to interview Robert J. Sawyer for next week. So I don't know that we should do any more reading because I really want to focus on talking to him. So then that will bring us back. We can separate part two into two readable sections for weeks three and four on this novel. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And how exciting for all of us. I, I love the excitement that Pam has in anticipation of the future of what's going to happen. Hmm, you guys, that's it's very flash forward of you. <laughs> it's not, but it's not an exaggeration as a Canadian to say like Robert J. Sawyer is, I think I would argue the premier science fiction writer of Canada right now. And he'll be here with us next week. I hope you will be with us too. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. What do you think, Pam? We are definitely coming back next week. We've seen the future. We know that we're going to be okay for next week. Good. Glad to hear it. I hope that you are reading along with us. I hope you're enjoying this as much as we are. We would love to hear from you. Do you have any questions for Robert J. Sawyer next week? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again. Again for listening to Sandwiches at Regular Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hassenflug. And I'm Canadian Campador. We'll see you in the future. Maybe not 21 years in the future.